19, 2022, at least 18 union leaders were arrested in Belarus, where an autocracy has run the country since the fall of the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, then we found out there was an outbreak in the plant coronavirus. So the concern was really what happens if our whole staff gets it and it shuts us down for two weeks during a pretty crucial period. So we had to start rethinking our approach there. And that changed a lot of things for us. It just threw everything off. I feel like a lot of what's behind the content is let's just throw things against the wall and see what sticks. And so everything feels a bit riskier in terms of will this be something that's even ever seen or released or will there be a focus on it while this company is making 400 other television series? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, the voice of a Belarus union leader who's now imprisoned, but who spoke with the Solidarity Center podcast just over a year ago. Also this week, unions rarely like to talk about their failures, but the BCTGM Voices project from the Bakery Workers Union brings us a fascinating and honest report on an unsuccessful organizing campaign at Hershey's in Stewart Strath, Virginia. Our final report today is about how content streaming has affected workers in the entertainment business from the SAG-AFTRA podcast. Spoiler alert, it's a very mixed bag. As always, you can find all these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. We're the largest U.S.-based international worker rights organization. We empower workers to raise their voice for dignity on the job, for justice in their communities, and for greater equality in the global economy. And for one just future. On April 19, 2022, at least 18 union leaders were arrested in Belarus, where an autocracy has run the country since the fall of the Soviet Union. This is one of the most far-reaching series of arrests of trade union leaders in the history of modern Europe. Today, the government of Belarus has aligned itself with President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, despite the protest of many in Belarus. The workers' movement in Belarus has spoken out clearly and decisively against the war on Ukraine and against their government's support for it, which is one big reason why they were arrested. Unions worldwide and global organizations like the United Nations International Labor Organization and Amnesty International are universally condemning those arrests and calling for the immediate release of these union leaders who are being held in pre-trial detention awaiting sentencing. 
they are being denied access to lawyers. One of those arrested was Sergei Antasevich, the vice president of the Belarusian Congress of Democratic Trade Unions. We talked with Sergei on episode two of the Solidarity Center podcast in March of 2021, and he spoke passionately about how Belarusian workers took to the streets to protest fraudulent elections in 2020 that meant the country's autocrat, Alexander Lukashenko, would continue in power. The massive resistance movement that began in 2020 has been fueled by workers, with many women leading protests and gathering in public defiance of a regime that relentlessly seeks to crush those who stand up for democracy. We want to share this episode again in honor of the bravery of Sergei and the many workers across Belarus who literally risk their lives for democracy, freedom, and social justice. And we want to bring to light once more the stirring words of a union leader whose belief that all people should be treated decently, with dignity and respect, has meant constant dedication to improving their lives at work through unions and their rights to freedom through democracy. We open with Sergei taking us back to that moment in August 2020 when the presidential election happened and the people rejected the outcome. Take us to that moment in August of last year when the presidential election happened and afterwards people rejected the outcome. When is the first time you really realized that this was a different time in history than ever before? After use excessive violence against peaceful protesters in many factories uh, began to express their position actively, protest against violence and fraud, and uh, started at first time in modern Belarus setting up strike committees. We have a ban for strike, for organizing strike. The protesters had had the demands, resignation of Lukashenko and uh, his clique, and in violence and repressions, and holding fair election. At the same time, at the call of our organization, BKDP, the workers and employees began to quit uh, the uh, state trade unions and try to create independent trade union. Wow. The protesters gave rise appearing numerous civil society initiatives and NGOs. New organizations have appeared where uh, they have never excited, particularly in uh, healthcare institutions and uh, educational establishments. We met many times these people, doctors, teachers, students. It's uh, incredible, really. I, I, I don't have this feeling uh, before. So across sectors, blue-collar workers in factories and in other blue-collar industries, white-collar workers from teachers to people in hospitals and universities, across the whole variety of types of employment in Belarus, we have independent worker committees forming and people joining independent unions. It really feels like 
the workers' movement is deeply at the heart of the democracy movement in Belarus. And I wonder if you could tell me why that is. Where does that come from, that spirit of organizing and worker collective power and engagement? I try to explain uh, our legislation system and uh, repression regime, uh, repression uh, all freedoms, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and uh, Belarus uh, in the blacklist, in the short short list in every year in ILO ILO International Labor Committee conference. I think uh, this year was uh, another trigger for changing the regime was attitude of Lukashenko towards uh, the COVID-19 problem. At first, he denied it at all the existence of the epidemic. Then he began inventing his own version of pandemic and its treatment. But each time trying to conceal a real statistic and extent of the disease. This disdainful attitude towards the people also played a very important role in escalating the protesting. Of course, finally, Lukashenko came to election having imprisoned but practically all his real opponents. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who went to the polls instead of her husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky, who was imprisoned by Lukashenko, has personified the fight for fair election only. There was only one point in her program. It's the main problem of our life, holding fair election in the country after the victory within six months. And she represents, as we understand it, a large number of women leaders in the country of Belarus across civil society and the emerging activist class. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the role of young women and women leaders in this movement? Women began the protests after uh, brutal violence after August 10th and 11th, when uh, a lot of people was beaten, a lot of people was uh, detained, a lot of people jailed and, and uh, opened uh, criminal cases. And the uh, first rally, women rally in Minsk was really, really, really so, so emotional, so hard when uh, women uh, staying with, with flowers in uh, white color clothes. I, I, I have... Uh, I not have enough uh, words to describe my feelings. It's very, very, very uh, strong and emotional. And after that starts uh, other rallies. I have birthday on uh, 16th of August. It was first 300 rally in Minsk. I never seen a lot of people in my birthday. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're you're painting such a vivid picture of the rallies, women wearing white and holding flowers, public squares filling with more and more people. And Brother Sergei, when you think about the future for your country, 
what does a free Belarus look like to you? For me, it's a free country, pro-European country. It's so, it's so hard because uh, 20, 26 years, people can't to do, can't to participate in, 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 uh, in real social activities, in real civil society organizations. Our organization of real uh, unions, it's only 10,000 people. It's little, little. Uh, another one, pro-state federation, uh, had a 4 million and a half million people. We need to build strong unions. Now I uh, know that we need a lot of training and education. Collective bargaining, organizing, campaigning, occupational safety and health at work issues. Because millions of people affiliating uh, to the state controls unions had no idea what a real u- what real unions should be. You know, Brother Sergey, could we take a minute on that? Because I think not all of our listeners will understand the role of a state labor federation. It's not the role of a trade union, really. It plays a different kind of role in a repressive state. Can you just tell us a little bit about the state-controlled federation? What was its job? What did it do? In 2002, when I first time was in Germany, I asked about the role of workers' organization in the fascism fascism time. And uh, the answer was... uh, at the enterprises uh, level, this organization sometimes helps people. And at the national level, it's only only voted for for state for president. It's not real union. It's I I, I can't to to call uh, this uh, social dialogue process, but but sometimes. Uh, we participated in in uh, this meeting. It's a real Soviet Soviet type system. When uh, you can't criticize authorities, maybe sometimes government, but not president. So a state labor federation has members that are workers, but they don't play the role in the society at the enterprise level with employers or with the state of fighting or advocating for workers' rights. Contrast that to your independent trade union federation and your hopes for the future of the independent labor movement in Belarus. What do you hope become the gains of the new independent unions of Belarus? I saw that uh, when we don't have a social dialogue in the country for 26 years, as long as the regime has been established. Social dialogue uh, exists as uh, formality in order to disorient the world community. And formal government, formal trade unions, and employers play a similar lo- role in our country. And uh, in our situation, all social partners will have to start the work on building up a social dialogue in the country practically from zero. For us, it's a very important task. So social dialogue where workers 
and their representatives, employers and their representatives, and the government actually negotiate over labor market and wages and working condition minimum standards and other things. Is this possible to achieve absent democracy? I expect that without real social dialogue, we don't have any chance to build a democracy in our country. Only on uh, international labor standards, uh, we must build new model of uh, social dialogue. And uh, we will uh, have a new process of uh, negotiation real negotiation with uh, employees uh, with uh, employers employees with employers so brother sergey let's turn to what's happening right now in the new york times opinion piece that you published very powerful piece you published in august of last year you closed by saying change is happening in belarus and that belarusians are ready to confront the uncertainty going forward and the uncertainty of the future. Talk to me about that uncertainty right now. Do you feel you've turned the page and we're headed in a new for a new Belarus? Does the movement feel the momentum is towards democracy and towards openness? How are you feeling? How is the movement feeling right now, months into the struggle? This article uh, was with uh, real, uh, real emotions in August. It was an incredible thing when we had a lot of meetings, a lot of marching, a lot of rallies. But uh, now we live in New Belarus because uh, people were changed. People's opinions, majority of people voted for democracy. But we have police state regime and uh, we have old legislation. A lot of obstacles. For example, when we establish a new uh, new trade union organization, we must to have permission from the authorities. Yesterday, we were received three cases when authorities forbidden to us to establish and uh, legalize our our organization. So the authorities are blocking your right to form international unions in court. Yes, yes. Sergey, why is the government so afraid of the trade union movement? (laughs) Because because, uh, they always say that uh, workers voted for president and uh, voted uh, for strong state and uh, these rules now this is not true. You were saying earlier there's been a fundamental change in the people. Yes, yes. What else has changed, do you think, permanently in Belarus? General change in the head, in the minds. Today people know that uh, pro-democracy society is a majority. It's not uh, not, uh, 10 or 20 percent. It's the majority. It's up to up to eighty, up to ninety percent of people. Might be in the, in the village, in the small towns where people 
don't have uh, tablets, computers, and uh, see only state television. They recognize this political regime like like a power, like a like a real real power. And in Minsk, in big cities, in the towns, no. And you know, I was thinking about your long leadership in civil society through years of repression and in this movement. And I know you must have drawn inspiration from somewhere. Where, where do you get your inspiration personally? Where do you get your drive to stay in this, this struggle and in this movement for workers and for a more free Belarus? My inspiration is uh, uh, this is a people, people who stand and fighting after this uh, August. I know that uh, I have neighbors, I have uh, uh, workers at uh, several enterprises, a lot of enterprises in Belarus, who wants to live in a free and democratic Belarus in in a European country. I really want to thank you for sharing so much of this powerful story with us today. Uh, I thank you because it's uh, very important for me to share this information. And uh, sometimes I, I can't find uh, English words and uh, emotions for explaining I felt very, every single one of your emotions, Sergei. It's a powerful story of workers coming together, brave and standing up for fairness in their country after years of repression. It's a powerful story, your story, my brother, Sergei, of a life dedicated to your people, your country, your labor movement, and for a vision of the future that inspires, I'm sure, everyone who hears this story. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. Thank you. Every summer, Union Women's Summer Schools take place in the West, South, Midwest, and Northeast, developing skills for women to grow their leadership in their unions and organizations. Find your voice, develop your skills, and realize sisterhood and solidarity at a school sponsored by the United Association for Labor Education. Find out about the 2022 Union Women Summer Schools at uale.org. This is Emily Twarog of UALE. Thank you. Hey, folks. It's Bama Athreya, your host on The Geek Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And this show is now part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can discover more than just us by visiting their website at laborradionetwork.org. The Labor Radio Network will help you find your favorite union podcast or radio show, besides this one, of course. What is the Labor Radio Podcast Network? It's a simple network of folks from around the United States. Working people keep raising their voices more and more each day and demanding better treatment from their workplaces and from their elected officials. These voices don't get heard very much on the corporate-controlled media. But the 21st century labor movement has a new way to get its message out there besides traditional media gatekeepers. 
Yeah, it's ironic, but we are talking about corporate controlled social media. But we are trusting you as the gatekeepers. So plug in and get the real news. For a one-stop shop, just visit laborradionetwork.org. It's worth going to visit this ever-growing set of voices for labor. BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. I will bring the work of our union to you through monthly interviews with the BCTGM's hardworking leaders, organizers, and everyday members. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. Following an organizing campaign that began last fall and stretched into the beginning of this year, workers at the Hershey facility in Stewart's Draft, Virginia, ultimately voted not to unionize with the BCTGM by a count of 843 to 225. On April 13th, worker committee members Jim Gibson and Janice Taylor joined BCTGM staff to reflect on the campaign. So everybody is aware of of the Amazon story that happened this week. The workers won their union in Staten Island. And as I'm reading every article that comes across my Facebook feed, I kept thinking about the workers at Hershey. Every story was so similar. You guys endured a lot of the same union busting tactics, but ultimately lost your union vote on March 24th. And we don't like to lose, of course. But as I was speaking to President Shelton this week and John Price, they took the position that we need to look at our losses as much as we look at our wins. And the fact is that the media was very interested in this story. We are the union that came off of three strikes at the end of last year. And I'll talk a little bit in a little while about the couple of viral moments that happened in this organizing drive from that. But it would just be a shame for us to never really address what happened or talk about it ever again and just let you guys go by the wayside. Jim, you were actually the first one who arranged a meeting for the workers. I did. I actually, on the way it got going, I was walking through the plant and there was a lot of discontent at Hershey at the time. And, and I was walking down the plant and a worker said that we needed a union in, in the plant. And I said, what union? And they, she mentioned Hershey 464 BCTGM and so my curiosity got the best of me. So I went home. When I got home that night, I researched it and called up to Hershey uh, 464, talked to Mike Saylor, and Mike got me in contact with John. And, and John and I worked on arranging a meeting here in, in Stanton to get some workers together and get this off, off the ground. So the um, plant manager had a meeting with four days after they found out that you were organizing, right? Yeah, I would assume Jim and or Janice were probably both at them first meetings. They could probably tell you firsthand what they said in that meetings about not signing a card. I don't recall a meeting, but I do recall in the huddles, the, we have 
meetings every morning before our shift starts, they would tell us, you're signing a blank check. You're losing your voice if you um, elect to have the union join. And Jim, do you recall the first meeting? Our TED meeting was on October 15th, and they had a, when we went into it, they had chairs set up and had a little cards about the stand with Hershey or something like that, I forget what it said on it. And they wanted you to call this care line, which is union busting line, to uh, answer all questions. And they always reiterated that we don't need a union here, little issues like that. And like Janice said, in the huddles, they would pass out the anti-union brochures. And then when you went to these union busting meetings, they were pretty much the same thing Janice said, you know, we don't need the union in here. And they try to make the union bad and pretty much propaganda. Going to these captive meetings, I learned the learn what propaganda was truly about. You never got the whole story about things. So it was just pretty yeah, much yeah. bashing. I also heard that when the LRI, this is a union busting firm, that's very expensive. When they came in, some of the workers thought that they were representatives from the labor board. Yes, they did think it was the labor board and not anti-union people. I don't know if they were misled or just misunderstood. Yeah, that was... That was definitely one of the issues. People did think this from the union or from the uh, labor board. We realized the momentum slowed down extremely, more than we thought due to the Christmas holidays and stuff like that. And so now it, it's a matter of tactics of how long do we stay out there to build up a better committee to secure the 65% cards? Because not every campaign is exactly the same. Once in a while, you got to go off script. And in this case, too, there was an outbreak of uh, Omicron. And I'll let Jared talk about it because he's the one that kind of said, hey, one of the things we got to look about is who's infected with it. Yeah. So basically what happened was when we got down there in January, we came up with a game plan. And a lot of that involved face-to-face with the employees. So we had set up meetings. We were going to get in front of the plant. We were going to try and do house calls. The basic fundamentals of organizing, just building those relationships. Unfortunately, then we found out there was an outbreak in the plant, coronavirus. So the concern there was we didn't want to risk, it ended up happening anyway, but the concern was really what happens if our whole staff gets it and it shuts us down for two weeks during a pretty crucial period. So we had to start rethinking our approach there and that changed a lot of things for us. And just threw everything off. It limited our exposure to the employees and how we could talk to them and how we could approach them. And we just put everything to a standstill. And of course, the staff ended up getting it anyway. And then and then Janice got fired, right, in January? Yes. So- it was just one thing after another. It, it, it just was a, a bad timing for sure. It didn't help. All right. See you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. If you found this content valuable, please consider sharing it on your own social media pages and be sure to tag us. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA, and I'm super excited to introduce the new co-host of the SAG-AFTRA podcast, Ben Whitehair. Ben's not only the Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA, but he's also a working actor, primarily in film, television, and voiceover, and he's a champion for our members. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. As Duncan said, I'm Ben Whitehair, and I'm delighted not just to volunteer my time to serve my fellow SAG-AFTRA members in my role as EVP, but also to be a co-host of this fantastic podcast. Woohoo! Yay, let's get to it. <laughs> At the South by Southwest Festival in March 2022, I moderated a panel focused on streaming and how this technology has affected the entertainment industry's business model. Thanks to streaming, viewers can now access content when they want it, where they want it. This has prompted a faster pace in the distribution model, which is a good thing for the industry and for SAG-AFTRA members, because having more content means there are more opportunities for people working across the entertainment industry, and this is important, it's allowed for more diversity. That said, the meteoric rise of streaming has also created challenges, including shorter series orders, irregular and longer seasons, exclusivity challenges, and the walled garden phenomenon among the big streaming companies. Talking to me about navigating this new world of streaming, I was joined by actor Jennifer Goodwin, actor and producer Michelle Lang, and SAG-AFTRA's own Chief Contracts Officer Ray Rodriguez. Each of them offered their unique perspective and experience on this issue. Let's dive in. So Jennifer, I'd like to start out with you, if that's all right, and just sort of pose this question. Streaming services, they facilitated, as, as I mentioned, an incredible increase in the sheer volume of content produced. Netflix alone has increased its production by more than 400 original episodes per quarter since 2015. How has that impacted the work you've done? And do you feel there are, in fact, more opportunities for actors now? And what, what might be the flip side of that opportunity? I feel that as a middle-aged woman, I see the flip side of this. I know that the math tells us that more, more projects means more jobs. I would love to talk to a 20-year-old actress about how she feels about it, because just like people used to ask me how I felt about women aging in Hollywood when I was in my 20s, and I had no idea what anybody was talking about, and I was like, the world's my oyster. Like, I don't see the problem. I definitely see it as very different now. I, I would love to know if there are a lot more opportunities for young people. I will say that what I find, it's a lot harder to wade through projects to determine what is going to be worth doing. Because there is so much content, and I feel like a lot of what's behind the content is, let's just throw things against the wall and see what sticks. So everything feels a bit riskier in terms of, will this be something that's even ever seen or released? Or will there be a focus on it while this company is making 400 other television series? And I also don't see that more projects mean more money. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the each individual project is getting what it deserves in the way of budget, which also then affects my paycheck. So I don't really see this new world of endless content as being thus far of benefit to me as a worker in the industry. There's also the issues of these new models. I mean, we saw some off-screen drama explode over this last year with respect to Black Widow and Scarlett Johansson. And first of all, let me just say, you know, to performers 
who are willing to step up and speak out. I mean, real applause because there is so much fear in the industry of people um, being blacklisted or retaliated against for speaking out and standing up for themselves. Scarlett Johansson is one great example of this. She stood up for herself and a bunch of other people too in the process. Ray, could you maybe talk a little bit about what the relevance of that is? Like how did Scarlett Johansson standing up to Disney, what, what did that sort of teach us? First of all, I agree with you, and the union released a statement of support for her when that happened because it is too uncommon to see performers stand up to a company like Disney, and so we were very pleased to see that she did that, and she was right to. Her contract called for her to be compensated based on box office bonus, and then her employer went and undermined the box office release of her movie by simultaneously releasing it to Disney+. Plus. And it shows you know, some of the challenges of this transition where you have contract structures that have been negotiated for many years based around box office. And then you see that the box office isn't what it was and they want to release it in the day and date and undermine the compensation that they bargained for. So it's, it's clearly pointing to different directions that uh, these deals are gonna be, uh, different ways the deals are gonna be bargained in the future. And it also points to another problem, which is the difficulty of valuing the release when it's not an arm's length transaction anymore. Uh, It's one thing when it's going to the movie theater and you can count the number of tickets sold and you know that uh, that the party that's counting those tickets and those sales is not part of the same studio that is releasing the picture. It's another thing when the studio is then gonna release that content directly to their owned streaming service and they are going to, it's basically a vertically integrated monopoly where they're gonna control everything from production all the way to the exhibition to the viewer, and there's no transparency into how much they are benefiting from this content, so how do you value it, and how does the performer get their fair share? Wait, can I ask you something? Why can't we get any numbers? As perf- like as performers, as it I'm actually directly, curious too. Yeah, affects our pay, and I mean, I as a producer, was streaming on, I mean, I, I will face this in working more for Disney. I face this when I'm negotiating a streaming contract when they say that there's just, you know, they say there's no way for us to tell you how many people. And it's like, challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, look, there's some information that you can get, but the, the you know, the information on viewership is looked at by these services as like the corporate crown jewels. They are not going to give it. Even the most powerful agents in Hollywood aren't able to get that information. And it goes to, you know, one of the main differences with streaming, which is that they are gathering data about their viewers as their viewers watch the content and developing their algorithms so that they can continue to serve you content that get, keeps you stuck to Netflix, keeps you stuck to Disney+. Plus. It's like part of their trademark of their yeah, algorithm. They, well, they... It's not that it's a a legal matter, it's a business judgment that these companies have made that they are prepared to fight as hard as they have to not to release that data because they look at it as a competitive advantage. Netflix, for example, if you talk to the people who work there, they view themselves as a technology company, not an entertainment company, and they look at that data that they're collecting on viewership, who's watching what, and not just viewership, because it isn't just about how many people watch, It's about how the content affects subscribership. So does the content attract new subscribers? Does the content retain existing subscribers? 
And it's based on this data analysis that Netflix, for example, has determined that they rarely are gonna make more than three seasons of a show because what they have learned from analyzing their data is that after three seasons for most shows, obviously there are high level shows that are different, but for most shows after three seasons, the impact is nil. Uh, it's not attracting new subscribers to watch season four of the show, right. and it's not retaining the existing subscribers beyond the third season. So that data is sort of, they view it as extremely core to their business, and look, I, I think there's gotta come a point where the agents start to win these battles a little bit more and get access to this data, but right now, they are adamant. This is, this, this is our corporate crown jewel, this data, and they just will not give it. Thank you so much to Ray, to Michelle, to Jennifer. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate your being here and I uh, hope everybody has a great rest of South by. Thank you. Thanks everybody for coming. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. Mel Smith is prepping for her finals. Good luck, Mel. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.